This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today's a special episode where we're bringing together two experts to debate a topic in type 2 diabetes management. Now, since 2018, guidelines have recommended that a GLP-1 receptor agonist should be attempted before advancing to insulin, meaning that most people starting insulin should, in theory, already be taking a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So is there still a place for a basal bolus regimen? The motion of today's debate is a GLP-1 receptor agonist plus basal insulin supersedes the need for basal bolus regimens in type 2 diabetes. Arguing for the motion is Anne Peters, who's Professor of Clinical Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California in the USA. Arguing against the motion is Richard Holt, who's Professor in Diabetes and Endocrinology at the University of Southampton in the UK. Both speakers have authored various international diabetes guidelines, most recently together co-chairing the writing group for the ADA-EASD Consensus Report for Type 1 Diabetes, and you can find their disclosures in the episode notes. So firstly, I'd like to invite Professor Peters to present her opening statement. Professor Peters? My opening statement with regards to this motion is that I think the most important thing for me is to do what's right for each patient. And I also give patients the choice as to what they want to do when they need to advance therapy. But given that, my own personal choice is to add a GLP-1 receptor agonist because I think there are many benefits. And one of the benefits is that to me, it makes sense physiologically because you're basically giving a hormone in addition to insulin and that hormone GLP-1 works on the beta cells to make the beta cells work in a physiologic fashion. So you're not just giving insulin based on whatever the dose is that the person decides, but this is letting the beta cells do what they're meant to do, which is to secrete insulin as needed. Therefore, it leads to less complexity because instead of giving a shot before every meal, multiple times a day, you just have to give a shot once a week in most cases. And that then lasts and goes along with the basal insulin. There are virtually no adjustments in dose that need to be made once you get to a steady state. So you don't have to tell a patient, add this, add that, adjust this, adjust that. But in addition, there are other benefits. So GLP-1 receptor agonists are great because they help with weight loss. And most people who are overweight want to lose weight. Now, if someone's lean, that might actually be a problem. But in an overweight individual, weight loss is a positive. There are much lower rates of hypoglycemia when you add in a GLP-1 receptor agonist compared to pre-meal insulin. And in individuals, particularly those who have known cardiovascular disease, there is a benefit in terms of reducing the risk for cardiovascular disease. And this therefore does multiple things, reduces complexity, reduces rates of hypoglycemia, offers cardiovascular disease protection, and it's simple. So those would be my arguments. Thank you. And Professor Holt, would you like to present your opening statement? Thank, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Emma. It's uh, always a great pleasure to be invited to do a debate, as I think it gives you that opportunity to really consider carefully the evidence surrounding the pros and cons of, of the motion. 
I think it's actually even more interesting when you're invited to oppose a motion that you would instinctively support, as is in this case. Uh, I've always been a strong advocate for the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists for many of the reasons that Anne was describing. They're clearly very good at lowering blood glucose, but also with the added benefits of losing body weight. And of course, we've seen more recently from the cardiovascular outcome trials that these drugs are also beneficial in terms of reducing cardiovascular events. And as Anne rightly pointed out, I think that the combination of GLP-1 receptor agonist and basal insulin makes a lot of physiological sense. It has a lot of advantages. It has greater efficacy than perhaps some of the other combinations with fewer side effects. And indeed, it's a combination that I've used on many occasions myself in my own clinical practice. However, I think that on closer reflection that this motion is flawed for a number of reasons. So I think we should start off by looking at the motion itself. And the motion describes that GLP-1 receptor agonists and basal insulin regimens supersede the need for a basal bolus regimens in type 2 diabetes. So what do we actually mean by supersede? Well, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, supersede means take the place of or supplant. Are we really suggesting that GLP-1 receptor agonists should take the place of basal insulin when managing type 2 diabetes? We know that basal insulin has a well-established role in type 2 diabetes, and I think that it will continue to do so long into the future. The way the motion is written, and indeed the way that Anne has interpreted it, is that GLP-1 receptor agonists should be added to basal insulin in place of a bolus insulin. However, in real-life clinical practice, particularly now that GLP-1 receptor agonists are available in oral form, we know that these should be used much, much earlier in the treatment pathway than, 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 than as, as is proposed. So, in other words, these two treatments really shouldn't complete. This motion makes about as much sense as saying metformin plus basal insulin regimen should supersede the need for basal bolus regimens in type 2 diabetes. And of course, we would never consider that to be a, 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 the, the reality. However, setting aside those, those issues that I've got with the motion and making the assumption that a person with type 2 diabetes is taking a basal insulin and they present to you with hyperglycemia, would you always choose a GLP-1 receptor agonist? And like Anne, I'd also believe that we should be individualizing care. But when we start to think about would you always choose or recommend a GLP-1 receptor agonist, the answer has to be clearly no. There are situations where GLP-1 receptor agonists are contraindicated, for example, in a history of pancreatitis, or if a woman is pregnant or is expressing a desire to become pregnant. And although many people with type 2 diabetes are overweight, not all of them. But even if you were to choose a GLP-1 receptor agonist, would it always work and bring that person to the glycemic target? Well, the answer is clearly not. It may not be tolerated and need to be stopped. And even when it is tolerated, it doesn't always reach the goal. So, for example, if we look at the JUUL7 study, which compared Ida Glyra, a combination of GLP-1 receptor agonist 
and insulin against basal bolus regimen. Although the idaglyra lowered body weight and was associated with fewer hypoglycemic episodes, around 20% of people didn't reach that goal. And so many people, when treated with both of these, will still need to have a bolus insulin. We also know that type 2 diabetes is very heterogeneous and leads to both fasting and postprandial hyperglycemia. And neither the GLP-1 receptor agonist nor basal insulin specifically target postprandial hyperglycemia. Now, many of you will know that Anne is a senior figure within the ADA and has had much to do with the standards of care. Well, if you don't believe me that bolus insulin should still be used, have a look at the standards of care, which recommend basal bolus regimens as an effective and valid choice for people with type 2 diabetes. It's been great to see how treatments have developed over the last 30 years since I started training in diabetes, and we've seen wonderful advances that have made us uh, made the management of type 2 diabetes so much more effective. But just because we've got a new tool in the toolbox doesn't mean we should throw away all of the old tools. Clearly, we need to be able to individualize treatment according to that person's preferences and clinical picture. So I would propose that basal bolus regimens are here to stay and they will continue to play an important role in the management of type 2 diabetes alongside GLP-1 receptor agonists. They most certainly have not been superseded. Professor Peters, do you have anything you'd like to comment in a rebuttal to that? I have many things I'd like to say back. First of all, it's really not fair because anybody who's from the UK debates infinitely better than anyone from Los Angeles. We just say what we think and we don't deal with all these things like what the words mean. That was very picky. But I was thinking that if you happen to have a patient on basal insulin, that this is what you'd add next versus getting to that point. Now, there are very few head-to-head -head trials that look at what you should add next, and the ones have heterogeneous results. And I, again, it's all about the individual in front of you. But I minimize side effects because I titrate up these agents very slowly. And I don't just do what the companies say in terms of titration. I have my own little micro titrations, and I tend to use the injected form because I can titrate so slowly and mitigate GI side effects. And I'm also a big advocate of starting early in terms of adding in something to basal insulin once you start to see postprandial hyperglycemia. That being said, you brought up the standards of care and the guidelines. And I actually know, which you don't, the 2022 guidelines. And I think that the world needs to really think about the fact that when you see any patient with type two diabetes, you have to determine whether or not that's somebody who's in a category that includes high risk for cardiovascular disease, known CVD, um, CKD, or heart failure. And those individuals need to be started on a GLP-1 receptor agonist and or an SGLT2 inhibitor way early in their therapy. They're not gonna wait till they're on basal insulin where their beta cells are failing and everything else. So by default, you are in incredibly correct is that there are a lot of people who are going to have, should have been started correctly on the appropriate agents. But in the United States, cost really rules in many settings. And I end up seeing lots of patients where I practice in an under-resourced setting where the protocols basically 
march them through to basal insulin before they'll give them a GLP-1 receptor agonist because of cost. In the United States, GLP-1 receptor agonists are very expensive and we use NPH insulin, which is really cheap. And so we actually have that paradigm. And in these under-resourced patients where their lives are very busy, they have uh, intermittent access to food, they have a lot of food insecurity, there are all sorts of issues. When I can actually get them on a GLP-1 receptor agonist in combination with basal insulin, it's a big win because they can't truly deal with the complexities of prandial insulin. So I would say that yes, always isn't necessarily the right word to use or supersede, but precede might be useful. And I do hope that people look at the patient and look at these high risk characteristics and use GLP-1 receptor agonists much, much early in the therapy because those should be the agents that are used first in many patients. So, uh, and uh, I'm sure that in reality, both of us are actually much closer to both of our points. I, I mean, I think you certainly highlighted the, the point that I wanted to make about the fact that we really should be trying to use GLP-1 receptor agonists much earlier in the natural history of type 2 diabetes. And I think particularly now that there is oral semaglutide available, that that should make it more possible. And you also actually raised a very important point about cost. Um, taking aside the fact that, of course, most of the costs of treating type 2, uh, type 2 diabetes come from the treatment of complications, clearly medication costs are, are very important. And certainly in some settings, the cost of oral semaglutide is going to be quite a lot cheaper than um, injectable um, GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I think that will probably change, change practice. But I think you also make the important point that cost has an important issue when people come on to starting insulin and not everybody will be able to afford to add a GLP-1 receptor agonist um, instead of, a, instead of a, a bolus insulin. Thankfully, that's not a choice that we have to make in the UK where we do have the, the, the situation of reimbursement. But I know that there are places in the world where there may be that choice between the cost of a, a, a bolus versus a, a GLP-1 receptor agonist. I'm going to add something that I just find oddly interesting is that I'm a big technology geek. And when I think of adding prandial insulin in a type two, it generally is somebody who's leaner. If I close my eyes and think, and I'm not talking about whether or not they're already on a GLP-1 receptor agonist for cardiovascular protection. I'm just thinking of it. And I've had a lot of success and I don't know if this is available in the UK, but we have insulin pumps, but particularly insulin pumps that are patches, they don't have all that tubing. And we have continuous glucose monitoring if somebody is on multiple daily insulin injections. And I've done really well in recent years using insulin pumps in my people with type two diabetes to get them down to target because it's much easier for them to give the prandial insulin. And I've been doing a study looking at a hybrid closed loop system in people with type two diabetes. So I think that when you think about giving prandial insulin, there are many ways to give prandial insulin. And sometimes I just start with one meal or sometimes the two biggest meals. But I think when people think about using prandial insulin, there are more than one way of even giving that. So I want people to really expand what they think about when they're thinking about treating their patients, because there are many ways to do this. And it's all about the patient. It's not about us. 
Uh, and you make some really, really important points there. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, in the UK, pump therapy is not reimbursed for type 2 diabetes, so we don't have that option. But um, like you, I often just add um, a bolus insulin just at one meal if that's what's needed, rather than necessarily going straight from one injection with the basal insulin to four with an injection at each meal. So there, there, there have been some quite nice studies actually showing this sequential addition of, of mealtime insulins. And if that works for the patient, then I think that's important, that, that it's important that we take those options rather than being very rigid in the way that we use um, um, bolus insulin. And finally, Professor Peters, could you present your closing statement? Well, my closing statement remains similar to my initial statement, which is we should individualize care based on the patient. And I will add to that from what we've discussed, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are an important part of therapy wherever you add them. But I still maintain that when I have a patient in front of me who's on basal insulin, who has type 2 diabetes, and let's add in the caveat, who's overweight, I still believe that in terms of complexity, physiology, the ability to help with weight loss and provide cardiovascular disease protection, I still add in a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And in my case, it's generally a once weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist, and then see if that's effective. And if it's not, then I move on to Richard's treatment, which is prandial insulin. So I still stand by my statement, and I think that that would be how I would approach this clinically. Professor Holt, could you present your closing statement, please? So, I, 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 as I mentioned during our discussion period, I'm sure that uh, Anne and I's uh, and my positions are actually much closer than a debate would actually allow. Uh, I would certainly agree that there are many people for whom the addition of a GLP-1 receptor agonist, if they're on basal insulin, would be a, a very appropriate choice. However, I think that there are situations when that isn't necessarily always the best choice, or indeed there may be situations where that combination is not sufficient to achieve the glycemic targets and goals that people are aiming for. And in those situations, we will definitely still need to have um, bolus insulin. And I think bolus insulin uh, used in a basal bolus regimen, whether it be once, twice or three times a day, is going to be around for us a long time. So I don't see the GLP-1 superseding GLP-1, uh, sorry, I don't see uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists superseding bolus insulin. I see them as being complementary tools within the, within the toolbox. This brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast or recommend us to your colleagues. And you can stay up to date by following us on Twitter at DKI Practice or connecting on LinkedIn. You can find links to these in the episode notes, as well as a link to our new website with lots of free and accredited CME content. Thanks for listening.